the goodness of God. Who can even who can even comprehend the depth and the goodness there was? So strange to think about God in relation to us in eternity and in goodness that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. He said yes before it all. Can you imagine that? He looked through eternity, saw you, and he said, yeah. While we were yet sinners, while we were lost, we didn't know him, we didn't love him, but he loved us. And he didn't have to because he had community in the Trinity. So he didn't need us. He had love, he had fidelity, he had all those things. And so great was his love that he wanted to share it. And he looked through eternity, he said yes to all the things that entailed, knowing the choices that you would make yesterday, today, the choices you're gonna make next week that fall short of his best for your life, that fall short with what you know. Some, some of you will fall into it unknowingly, some of you will fall into it willingly. And yet his goodness is there, his mercy is there, and we fall forward into grace. And I think that's one of the things that you really need to embrace is the grace of God. The grace of God is, is on each and every one of us, the general grace to get saved. And then there's a grace that's specific to you to overcome sin in your life, to overcome the struggles, to overcome these things. It's not, you know, I tell people this, Jesus didn't come to peacefully coexist with sin. He came to eradicate, he came to overcome it. And that's the message of grace. And it's not that we becoming saved somehow become these amazing beams of light I mean, that's one of the things that, that, that's kind of difficult to process because we're in this holy week. And if you think about it, you know, uh, depending on who you read, tonight or tomorrow would have been the, the Passover meal, depending which way you want to parse it. And in that meal, there was so much prophecy and so much that Jesus wanted to do. And one of the things that he did, and it's kind of strange to me, two things. He gets down and he, he washes the disciples' feet. And so we see Peter, you know, this slugger coming up and him saying, you're not going to wash my feet, you know, because that's what we kind of want to do. No. And it was this sense of honor that we sometimes ha have because Christ is sitting there and we go, oh, no, we can't. And Jesus said, you don't understand. If I don't do this, then you can't have it. And Peter goes, okay, then he goes on the offside. And most of the time we do that pendulum swing. He's just, he's just an extension, a hyper extension of us all. He goes over here, okay, wash my head, wash everything, wash everything I got. He's so excited. Jesus goes, okay, no, you don't have need of that. And as Christians, we have to understand what, he's, what Christ is saying there. Because when we take upon the robe of salvation, Christ has made that beautiful and purified. But as Paul said, we live in this world, but we're not of this world. But living in this world, how many people here tonight would be willing to say, I've got a little dirt on my feet every once in a while. And that's the message they were showing was washing the feet of these disciples, saying, you're going to, you're going to, it's okay. You're going to walk, ponder your path. God will direct your steps. You're walking by faith, not by sight. Ask for that grace of God to come in your life to overcome those moments and those struggles, because sometimes you're going to step off in something. Sometimes it's going to be a little deeper <laughs> than you wish. And you're going to need to sit there and apply that gracious blood of Christ to your life that washes and cleanses. And the other thing that blew my mind about it was that here Jesus knew Judas, knew his heart, knew his intent. And this is what speaks to me about the beauty and the love of Christ. And maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're saying to yourself, I've done too much. I've just, I've gone down that road too far. Judas is just about 
to be filled with Satan and go and betray Jesus. I mean, he's a tick away from it. Jesus knows all that. And here he is offering Judas another chance. Guys, wherever you're at tonight, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, Christ is offering you another chance. Don't believe, don't believe that lie that, oh, I've done this or I've done that. Because it, what qualified you to get in heaven? What did you do? Right? What did you do? Nothing. Well, what can disqualify you? Oh, well, if Christ is the one who qualified, Christ is the one who disqualified, and he didn't disqualify, he says, okay, here, here's your feet, wash your feet, pick you up, get you on the road. Why? Because he's about your future. He's about your future. Why? Because your future involves other people. And those other people don't know him, don't love him, and he wants to show the love of Christ through you. And that's one of the beautiful things about this week. Um, with Palm Sunday, and you see the prophecy of it, and you see that Jesus is coming in riding on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9, and he's, he's lowly, he's meek, and he's humble, and all these people are, are starting to sing and throw down palm branches, and they're singing the Hallel Rabbah. You know, they're saying, blessed, he comes, blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing this, this Psalms 113 through 119, and they're just literally fulfilling prophecy. But the problem is, is they're doing it in a different way because they're saying, blessed son of David, son of David. And he's coming as son of Joseph. He's coming back as son of David. And so that's why Jesus later on says, you will not see me again until you see blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you see a kind of a, a cyclic effect here of this prophecy of it being fulfilled and it, have, it will be fulfilled because one day Jerusalem will sit there and sing, uh, they'll see Baruch Hashem Hadanai, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord and Christ will return as son of David, the king, ruling and reigning in righteousness. So you see all this week is this huge condensed portion. In fact, a lot of your gospel is this week itself. As you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, a lot of this is condensed. A, a greater portion of these gospels are condensed to this one week. Jesus coming in, um, sitting there just in this kind of Old Testament reality, just as a lamb would be inspected, just as the process that you saw Passover happening beforehand, Jesus is doing the same thing. In fact, before this week, I remember talking years ago about it, about him coming through different towns and he come through a town called Bethage, which means unripe frigs. And what happened was, is that the Jews believed that, that Adam, it was a fig tree that they ate of. And so all these Pharisees, they would all come from Bethany and they'd stay there because there was no chance of them repeating the sin of Adam because there was no right figs. That's silly, but that's what they would do. So he comes through there and he kind of just grapples with them. And, um, and then he goes on to a place called Bethany, which is right figs. And there's a cool typology in that, really cool. And if we had time tonight, we'd discuss all different things. But, you know, it's kind of like he comes there and he curses this, 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 this tree, this fig tree, because it has all these leaves and it has no fruit. It has all these works, but nothing of the Holy Spirit of love, joy, peace. See, it's not by works that you're saved. And that's what he's trying to show. Because uh, oftentimes we try to cover ourselves in these works. But the real heart of the matter is, are we saved by grace through faith? Because you can do all you want to on the outside, but Christ is the one who discerns the heart. So there's a lot of typology in this thing. Everything is just exploding this week, 2,000 years ago. And one of the most interesting things 
in tonight's message called the marketplace of your heart. The marketplace of your heart. Just to give you a little background, whenever hermeneutics, studying the word of God, there's different uh, ways you can take it. You can take it in historical, you can take it in a, a preterist way, a futurist way. There's different ways that they teach you how to study the word of God. In a Hebraic rabbinical way of study, um, what you end up doing is if something's mentioned once in the scripture, it's important. Okay? Anything that's mentioned in scripture is important. If it's mentioned twice in scripture, it's pretty important. If it's mentioned three times in scripture, it's of most importance. Well, passage I'm talking about tonight doesn't come just one time or two times or three times, but it actually comes two different accounts in four different, in all the gospels where Christ comes to the temple. Now scholars will say that John 2 was him coming at a different time, but if you think about it, he's coming to the temple four times. So that's like the most mostest, I don't know, that's not a word, the most mostest, mosterish that you can get for four times. The Holy Spirit inspiring this word of God. There's something that we could learn from that. Amen. Right? That's how we do it. And people say, oh, okay, so something's mentioned once is not important. No, no, that was not what I was saying. It's important, whatever it says. See, we build up from there, not down from there. <laughs> so you say, okay. Example of something's mentioned once. We only have one time in the Bible where we can exegete where we can actually say that God puts the importance and the priority of the meaning of Scripture in the original language, Nehemiah 8.8. It's only mentioned one time. But because it's mentioned, on any given time frame, whoever's up in this pulpit, we're going to talk for 25 minutes to maybe five hours. Um, <laughs> it's all right. We'll get out to 10 tonight. Um, we've probably read about 50 to 300 pages. We've looked at it in different languages. Why? I don't speak this stuff. I don't speak Latin, but I was like, oh, there's Latin. On your stake, we told the mundi or whatever it is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. I don't know Latin, but I'm sitting here trying to. Why? Because God said one time in his word that it's important that you look at the original meaning and the, the meaning from the original language, and that sets the foundation of all the doctrine. So it's important that we do that. But here we see different times. So you have Matthew 21, you have Mark 11, Luke 19, all talking about this last week, in which it talks about Jesus going into the temple. And Jesus kind of turns up the volume just a little bit, he turns up the intensity, because he sees so much messed up stuff going on. And so he sits down and plads a whip, and he goes, to, he goes to town on some people. This just got through talking about the gracious Christ who's sitting there and washing your feet. He's not bipolar. He's very, very, very holy and righteous. And his father's house is being desecrated. His father's house, he comes into it. And it's supposed to be the best week and the holiest week. And he's going on to be crucified. And he looks out and he sees all this going on of the money changers who are just making a profit because people have to come in and there's a tax and a half shekel and oh, we don't do it in that, we don't do it in that currency, we do it in this currency, but we happen to have the currency and for a price, we can change it for you at the temple. Oh, that seems reasonable. And he sees the different things going on. People, oh, well, gosh, you don't need to bring your sacrifice, just bring some money. 
And we've got your sacrifice. It might be five times, but I'll tell you what, it's the holiest sacrifice you've ever seen. It doesn't have a spot or a blemish. And hey, I tell you what, we can do a two for one if you like. And they, they were doing it at this markup. In fact, many times, like five times the markup. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine coming in? Hey, can you imagine someone trying to prophetize the gospel? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but I want to talk to, out of John 2. And I know that John 2 was probably the first time that he did this. But because it seemed like a pattern with Christ to come in every Passover week and clean the temple out. And that's kind of interesting if you think about it. Because that means that things tend to regrow when you don't continue to clean them out. So if you, have, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 2, 13 through 21. We'll go to it. We'll read it. I'm reading out the NIV here. Um, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. Not just the people doing it, but also the ones, all the sacrifices. Hmm. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's kind of where we got the tonight's title. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. See, he's fulfilling a prophecy. Zeal for, for the house of God. Verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. You know, Jesus sometimes does some messed up stuff. And then he sits there when you ask him what he's done in your life and he gives you a riddle. Yeah. Anybody ever had that one? Yeah. yeah. You find yourself in the middle of something and just wanting a solid answer. And then he spoke in parables and he said he spoke in parables because it was, you know, they couldn't understand anyway. So might as well try to make it simple. And I'm thinking I'm the dumb dumb here because I don't even understand the parables half the time. I got a lot of questions. In fact, I got one like a, the guy that shows up at the wedding feast. He's not got the right clothes on. Yeah. And he's cast out into outer darkness. Okay, I get it. Robes of righteousness. I get the general. Here's my question. Why wasn't someone watching the door, Jesus? <laughs> That's scary. Am I that guy? <laughs> Am I going to show up there? Is it that Jesus is really excited about fashion? No. <laughs> I'm just, what would you do there? What would you do in that situation? I have some questions. But in this parable here, he says, he says this, because people aren't getting it in the moment. They're saying, wait a second, this temple. And they replied, it, took, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? Big question mark. But the temple he's spoken of was his body. Oh, there you go, Jesus. It would have been nice if you just said, hey, I'm going to get crucified this week, and I'm going to wake up on Sunday, and it's going to mess your worlds up. But here we are. So here we go. After he was raised from the dead... Yeah, retrospectively, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words. You know what? I think I would have believed him before that. But he said, then they believed. Oh, remember when he said about that temple thing? Jesus. 
Verse 23, now while he was in Jerusalem at Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Means that, hey, he'd been close enough to people. He knew what their hearts were. He did not need any testimony of man, about mankind. All the people who were up and tell him about, you know, their sister Susan and this and this and this. He knew all that. He did not need that, for he knew what was in each person. The word here in market in the Greek is emporion. It's where we get the English word emporium. It's where we were talking about the marketplace. Um, it kind of gives this connotation, and you already know what it is, that this buying and selling this merchandise. Jesus is coming in, and he's turning this over. And the interesting thing about it, he's not just upset at the money changers. He's upset at the people who are engaging in it. So he's all, it's the buyers and the sellers that he's kind of sideways with here. It's, it's one of those things going back to this Passover week. If you read back in Leviticus and Numbers, it talks about the first Passover. It talks about the way that God wants Passover done. And this is what he says. When you're getting ready the day before the, the, the Passover, what you need to do is you need to go and remove all the leaven from your house. Now, leaven in real world speak today is yeast, yeast for bread. Why, why do they do that? Because it's a representation. Typology doesn't, doesn't create theology. It strengthens the theology we already have. So God is always speaking in parables. He's speaking in type and shadows. But the theological importance is this, that yeast is a representation of sin. It puffs up bread. It puffs us up with pride. So in this moment of God trying to build Christ, Messiah, through the Passover, having this lamb and the lamb's bud being put on the doorpost for the sins and being this covering, says, get all the leaven out of your house. You got to do this before Passover. And what, what, what the Jews would do and what they do today even is they will, they will literally, the mom will go around and make sure that everything's clean, everything's spotless. And then what she'll do, she'll take 10 pieces of leavened bread and she'll hide them out throughout the house. And then what will happen when Passover is coming on, right beforehand, the father will take the kids and he'll take a candle and he'll take a feather and he'll take a wooden spoon and he'll say, let's go find, let's make sure there's no leaven in this house. And they'll go on this hunt and they'll say, oh, okay, oh, here's one. And what they'll do is they'll get down, the father will put down the light next to where the, where the, where the sin is. And with, the, with, the, with this wood, almost like a cross and the feather of the Holy Spirit, he'll put it onto the cross. Isn't that kind of weird? It's interesting, isn't it? I don't even know what they do sometimes. And they'll collect everything they can. When they've got it all, he'll go and he'll put it into a linen sack and they'll put it outside the house. Like Christ being wrapped in linen. And then the next day he'll go to the temple and they'll burn it. See how amazing that is? So Jesus goes to the temple and just in accordance with Passover, just the way it's supposed to be right before Passover, goes and gets the leaven out of the Father's house. Isn't that cool? So Jesus is showing us, showing us a picture. So in interpretation, you have a pesher and you have a peshet. You have, you have the real meaning, the literal scriptures, and then you have the deeper, the deeper meaning. Now, if you're not careful, you want to jump around in the scriptures as you read and you want to look for these deep, solid meanings. First, you need to make sure that you read and you understand the plain meaning. This is what Jesus is doing. But there's a deeper meaning in this tonight as we close. There's a deeper meaning that we have to 
take into account and how do we apply this? Well, you know, your word says in 1 Corinthians, it says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if some people know where we're going. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Christ comes into your life. And the heart, the word of God says, is infinitely deceitful. Who can know it? Sometimes we don't even know our intentions. Sometimes we do. Unfortunately, I know most of my intentions, and they're not always good. <laughs> I wish they were. But sometimes, like David said, convict me of my secret sin, the Lord. But Christ will come in, and things start getting turned over in our life. Why? Because what does Christ represent? What is he? The Devar Adonai, the Logos, the Word. It's a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Thy word, O Lord. So Christ comes in and you get saved. And all of a sudden, this big light comes into this temple and starts looking at different things and saying, oh my gosh, look right there. Oh, over here. But we see here is a little different picture. Because they were these religious people that should have already known all this stuff. And sometimes in Christianity, we can get complacent. Sometimes we can get religious. Sometimes we can do these different things and we build up these man-made traditions or different things like that. And every once in a while, we get this, this moment of Christ coming into our life and saying, what are you doing? Shocking moment. And we can either let the Holy Spirit bring that conviction and it be put onto the cross, just like the sin was put onto the spoon. Or we can say, why do you have authority, Jesus? Why, what makes you so special in my life that I have to forgive this person? You don't understand. Yeah, he does. He literally washed the feet of Judas. Then said, hey, this, by the way, you're going to betray me tonight. Jesus goes, hmm. He goes, all right, go ahead. Jesus knows what you've gone through. But sometimes we hold on to things. Um, good intentions, bad intentions. I'll imagine that there were people traveling in from, uh, from Judea, from Samaria, from all these different places. And they thought to themselves, oh my goodness, we're having to do so much. Let's just, let's just do it at the temple. Let's get everything exchanged at the temple. We'll pay the higher rates, not a big deal. I'm not saying that everything that we do in life has this horrible intentional badness to it. Unintentionally, we find things in our life where we're either making merchandise of the gospel, we're making merchandise, or we're trying, to, we're trying to use a scripture out of context sometimes in our life to prove that whatever it is. Jesus comes into this temple. He's not having that. Why? Because he didn't come to coexist with sin. He came to overcome it, and that's the message of grace. Closing tonight, let's just look at some different points that we can draw from this, because that's one of the things that is beautiful. Not only do we need to know the doctrine, but we need to know the principles of the Word of God. We should be able to draw principles from the Word of God. Paul talks about that. He said the Scriptures are there to teach us. In fact, 70% of the Old Testament, uh, 70% of the Bible is Old Testament, 30% is New Testament. The New Testament is nothing but a commentary on the Old Testament. Okay? You want, you want to learn about the law and stuff like that? Read Romans. Read Hebrews. You want to, you want to, know, uh, you know, you want to know different aspects? 
you got to you, you read Galatians. Read these different letters. Why? Because they're explaining and unpacking not only the gospel, what Jesus was saying, what he meant, but they're explaining it through the lens of the Old Testament. Because it's concealed in the Old Testament. It's revealed in the New Testament. So the New Testament becomes a commentary. So if you're not careful, you carry it. You spend all your time in the New Testament. You end up going, I'm not sure what this letter is talking about. I don't see how that's applicable. But it was referring to a story in the Old Testament. Paul's saying these stories actually have a lot, of, lot in them, not just about Jesus, but how you should live your life. And more importantly, because one of the things is that Bible is not hagiographic, which means that it doesn't whitewash things. So David messed up with Bathsheba, and they wrote it in there. That's kind of the way you can know that the Bible's kind of true is because it doesn't say David was this perfect king. It actually says he messed up pretty bad. Don't do that. Be where you're supposed to be. You know, the, the, be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be. At the time the kings were going to war, David stayed behind. He was by happenstance and he saw something he liked. Be where you're supposed to be. You see how you can draw different principles? So, but if you don't have the doctrine, if you don't have that doctrine down first and you go to the pest, you go to the deeper you can end up getting confused and spiritualize everything. Some things just mean what they mean. But let's draw some principles. Number one, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, not the marketplace of compromise. So oftentimes we get so excited for this or for that. We talk about this book or this preacher or that. We can get so caught up in that, we don't just open up our words. Because the word is the one that illuminates. And those books are good. I'm not saying you shouldn't. Those preachers are great. You should. But it's a personal salvation. It's a personal attachment to the word of God. David said, I hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Whatever you put in is going to come out. And if you're not careful, you end up getting some psychobabble mixed in with the Bible and stuff. This comes out and you end up just saying some weird stuff. And people go, and it becomes what Peter says, truth mixed with error. And it becomes this muddy mess that God says he hates mixtures. And then you walk around saying, why does half of this work and half of this doesn't? And you go, oh, I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, this is all garbage. This is all hogwash. Why? Because you don't take the time to realize that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Instead, sometimes we make this a marketplace of compromise. Number two, Jesus the Word should be the cleansing agent of our life. One of the things that I, you know, one of the things I think is, is he goes through and there was time we could go through some of the symbolization of the ox, the sheep, the doves, the money changers and what they mean. Ox symbolizing this hard, strong work, stuff like that. Sometimes we get saved by grace and then we're not careful, we get right back into works. Oh, I've got to prove to everyone I'm saved. And I work hard all day and I can, I, I went out today and I, and I witnessed the 1,300 people and I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that to prove to people saved. You know, you, you, don't, you don't do good works to get saved. Most people can say, okay, I can get down with that. There's, a, there's still some strange ones out there who don't read. Uh, then you have these over here who say, I I. I do works to prove that I'm saved. Well, that's actually not accurate. And then you have the third group of people, which is everyone here tonight, who says, I do good works because I am saved. See, talking about the leaves, remember? All those works, but up under it, the fruit of the Spirit. 
And that fruit needs to be protected. It needs to. Why? Because God's growing it. And those works kind of sit there. And it's not to prove you're saved. And it's not, you know, uh, it's not to, to get you saved. It's because you are saved. Good works just manifest out of you. James said, I'll show you my faith by my works. See how that works in? Isn't that beautiful when you can draw those things? So, you know, uh, ox can represent things like that. The sheep symbolizing this covering of sin. Now, the sheep was there as a type and shadow to cover, saying it was a temporary covering. And Christ was sitting there saying, I'm the eternal covering. I'm not here trying to cover you in that sense. I'm here, and this is what was beautiful, is that Jesus doesn't, doesn't just cover, he takes it away. John sitting there, John the Baptist looks out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away. See, the sheep was a temporary covering. The blood atonement was just a temporary thing you had to do for all kinds of reasons. And if we're not careful, we'll get into that mentality where we have to sit there and say, oh goodness, I got to go get a new covering. I got to go, I got to go, oh Jesus, I'm so sorry. I got to get a new covering. No, you don't. You need to get your feet washed. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away. So you see the typology here of him driving things out. Why? Because not only is he ill, because he is the perfect sacrifice. He's everything once and for all. And if we're not careful, we can sit there and we get caught up. He's the one that's cleansing agent. Dove symbolizing the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we get so caught up in this pneumocentric kind of philosophy, pneumo meaning the spirit kind of philosophy, we forget that we are Christocentric. That means we are Christ-centered in our gospel. That's how we're saved. So you need to be balanced there. And different things like that. And we can, for the sake of time, money changers symbolizing trying to trade earthly things for redemption. Everybody remember Simon Magnus in Acts? Hey, let me give you some money and buy some of whatever you got there. Peter says, that's not the way this works. Oh man, I'm going to pay for this. I'm going to go to this new conference. I'm going to catch what that's got and I'm going to bring it over and I'm going to have it. Only $399. No one's ever heard that before. That doesn't happen in Christendom, does it? Don't think that you can exchange earthly things for spiritual things. Don't think that you can sit there and somehow barter for the things to grab this redemption that Christ has to offer. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. And you can't somehow buy your way into something more. It's something that Christ just not only covers you, he cleanses you, he takes it out of you. Number three, Jesus is the only sufficient sacrifice. Because that's what he was saying. He was sitting there. That's what he tried to tell him. He said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. I'm it. I'm all you got. There's nothing else. All this other stuff that you're trying to, you're trying to drum up, drum up with whether it's, you know, you got good intentions, you got bad intentions, the buying, the selling, all this stuff, it's useless. I'm the only way. Christ, he's the only sufficient sacrifice. And the last one, which terrifies me, 
<laughs> and I didn't even, I didn't put the S on it at the end. Sorry. Jesus, know the heart. <laughs> Jesus, know the heart. It terrifies me. Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knows your heart. Because that's what it said at the end of the, in, in, in verse 25. It said he didn't need for people to really talk to him back and forth. He knew exactly who they were. And sometimes in prayer, in earnest and in good, we sit there and we spend the first 15 minutes machine gunning Jesus with everything that we are. Guilty. God, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I think the Lord yesterday, I sat there and I got cut off in traffic. And Lord God, I just went ahead and told them they were number one. I didn't know what to do about it, but I, I did. I did. I told them they were number one. If you were in Britain, you told them they were number two. <laughs> and if you know that, then you would know that. Um, <laughs> and you sit there and you round all these things off. And yeah, we should, in one sense, confess our sins instead of trying to cover them. Like that sheep analogy. We should confess our sins, but in those things, it should be more than God. You know what? I struggle with this anger all the time. I know you know it, Father. I hate that about me. Lord, yet you still love me. Oh, your grace. Oh, Father, cleanse me. Like Psalms 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. Purge me with hyssop, I'll be made clean. You see this, how this David's heart and all these different things that Christ is coming in and he's telling you he knows your heart. You don't have to always sit there and rattle off. You can just let the presence of Christ come into your life. And if you've never done that before, realize that you are the temple that God wants to come into and that if you will open the gates and let him in because you have that measure of faith to get saved, Christ will come in and you might say, oh my goodness, I don't want things to turn over in my life. Yes, you do. Because there's no other way to salvation except through Jesus. And you may be sitting there and say, I've been doing this for 25 years. You know, John 2 is a representation of the first time that Jesus did it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are representation of him doing it right on that Passover week. Sometimes you've got to repeat the process. Don't wait so long that Jesus has to come in like a gangbuster <laughs> and start throwing tables around in your life because he'll do it. Why? Because he loves you and he wants to save you and he wants to keep you secure and he doesn't want you to have to go through these things. He doesn't want you to live a false gospel of works, a false gospel of temporary coverings, a false gospel of thinking you can sometime, somehow exchange this thing, the Holy Spirit, and somehow it can testify of you instead of Christ. Don't let Christ have to bust in whenever you can sit there and with that tender word of God and the Holy Spirit and the cross of Christ, remove that leaven, stick it outside your house and let it be consumed and God will cast it as far as the east is from the west and he remembers it no more. See the typology? It's full circle. God's so good. God is so good. Jesus being the word comes, and drive, comes to, into us and drives out the parts of our life where we are compromising his sacrifice and salvation by trying to use our, when we try to do sacrifice and salvation by trying to use hard work or try to cover our sins instead of confessing them. We should be focused 
on him. For he's the one who's sufficient. The passage ends with Jesus basically in his authority to do all this. And he points them to, he points him as he points us. And this is the, this is the part that you need to get. Where's Christ's authority? He points them as he points us. Just like at the end of this week, 2,000 years ago, he's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be taken. He's going to be He's going to be beaten. I don't know why it just hurts me. He's going to be stripped down naked and he's going to be flailed. He's not going to open his mouth. Not going to try to defend it. Because he's looking through eternity at you. And he's going to be crucified. 2,000 years ago. And that's what he was trying to tell him. By what authority? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of you.